listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. chance to check out my new book, Women of the Military. It is a compilation of 28 stories of military women. Check out my latest five-star review on Amazon. As a female veteran myself, I love that this book exists. Great content, a great collection of female veteran experiences. Amanda does an awesome job of capturing their stories in this compilation. Would definitely recommend it. So go check out Women of the Military on Amazon today and order your copy now. Linda Mitchell served in the Air Force for 10 years, beginning her service in June of 1995. She served on active duty and had an assignment at the Pentagon on September 11th, was on watch when the space shuttle disintegrated, re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. She helped serve 42 heads of state during the NATO's 50th anniversary summit in D.C., and she also had severe preeclampsia with her first child that she gave birth to while her husband was deployed to Afghanistan. These are just a few of the highlights from her career. I'm excited to hear more of your experience about being in the Air Force. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Amanda. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited to hear more about your experience. So let's get started with why did you decide to join the military? My father was in the Air Force and he had told me how fun it was to be able to travel the world and to learn skills as well as cultures from other lands. I grew up on three continents. I was born in England, actually at Lakenheath in England. We went from there to the Midwest and also lived in Okinawa, Japan before I graduated high school in Hawaii. So I've been very fortunate to have had the chance to travel overseas and to actually experience other cultures. With that in mind, I couldn't see myself really just staying in one place. So I went to school at Miami of Ohio in Oxford, Ohio, which was pretty much in the middle of a big cornfield. And I needed to get out and do something more exciting. So I thought, well, why not follow my dad's footsteps and sign up for the service? get to see maybe some other countries, learn a few skills, learn how to build teams, and it probably wouldn't hurt to also serve my country. So I signed up for ROTC, got to be what they call the professional track, you know, at the Oxford campus there at Miami University Detachment 640, which uh, took me to uh, summer training at Fairchild, which was a lot of fun being out in the middle of the forest there and picking wild strawberries while also learning how to keep my hair up in regs as well as how to push ups when they fall down <laughs> because my hair would frequently fall down as I didn't realize that you really need to put it up with a lot of mousse or pins or something. And uh, that was where I learned really to keep my hair up. So I, I joined the Air Force in a nutshell so that I could experience other cultures and learn new things because with a degree in psychology, I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but I thought that it would be fun to see the military. That's cool. What was your job when you actually went into the Air Force? I was assigned as an information management officer, which was 37 Alpha One, which means that we would handle record management and also help with administration in what was called the orderly room, which now is referred to as the commander support staff. And so when you have personnel in processing or out processing from a unit, um, as well as if they get promoted or if they have promotion, you know, awards and depth, those sorts of actions are all 
handled through the commander support staff. And that's where I was first assigned at the 95th Civil Engineering Group at Edwards as an information management officer, but also as a squadron section commander. So that was pretty exciting as a second lieutenant to do that. My background is civil engineering, and we had a we had a section commander, so I know exactly what your job was because I knew the second lieutenant who was also a second lieutenant when I was there. So that's kind of cool. That is cool. So tell me a little bit about your time in the military. Where did you start, and how did your career progress? Started off in the middle of the Mojave Desert, and it was quite a dramatic departure from having been. So close to large bodies of water. Having grown up first on the British Isles and then around the Great Lake in Michigan and Illinois, and then going to islands in the Pacific like Okinawa and Hawaii. You know, I spent some time, of course, in college in Ohio, but aside from that, I've always been around a great big body of water. So to be thrown into a big sandbox, which was the Mojave Desert, was kind of a shock because of the temperature, sometimes going up to 120 degrees. It was just like a big hair dryer in the uh, summertime. It was just so hot, you know, very little humidity and a lot of heat. But my time at Edward started off pretty well, and I ended up being an exec for a mission support group commander out there, Colonel Marieski, who showed me the ropes on what it was like to be a ORI commander, Operational Readiness Inspection Commander. So it was fun. I got to tag along with him as he was inspecting the troop. We were doing all kinds of field exercises. It was pretty hot. But, you know, it gave me a sense of what it would be like to be deployed and got a kick out of chasing down, actually, the ice cream truck as uh, (laughs) it had winded in and out of the housing area. I asked my boss for permission first, and I said, hey, sir, would it be okay if I go get some, you know, kind of frozen refreshment for the troops? And he said, oh, yeah, sure, go ahead. You know, so I took my little red Toyota out there and flagged down the ice cream truck, and the guy was driving and looked at me like, what are you doing? And I said, don't worry, just follow me. And so he literally followed my POV into the encampment. At first, the troops had peered out from behind their hiding places thinking, oh, is this a trap? <laughs> you know, what's going on here? But no, it was just, it was just an ice cream truck. You know, it turned on its familiar little child tune and, you know, just sold ice cream for a buck a piece. And, you know, it made everybody's day. It was awesome, you know, to be out there. But unfortunately, uh, we got written up by the IG because that did not simulate harsh wartime environment. Oh, well, you know, it's okay. It was still worth it in the long run because it was a welcome break. It made people happy, you know, that day. So even though we had to address it in the write-up, it was okay overall. Where did you go after Edwards? I had a letter come across my desk one day saying your career field is about to disappear. So you have to decide what do you want to do next? What career fields would you like to enter? And so I thought about it and I said, well, hmm, uh, probably the Office of Special Investigations. Being an investigator would be good. I like trying to decipher what happened and who, what, when, and where, you know, on things. Secondly, I put down public affairs. And then third, I suggested uh, communications and computer systems as a a next career field, which is ultimately what I got because they needed more of that, at least for that time frame. So the next step after getting my career field was to determine when would I go to tech school for that, to be trained. And my boss at the time was willing to let me go to school but didn't know when I would be selected to get a seat in tech school. So one day I told him that there was opening 
potentially um, in the class that was going to start in a week, I said, hey, sir, you know, there's a small chance that maybe if an opening is offered to me, you know, I would be glad to go, you know, and would you be able to let me attend? Basically said, well, yeah, sure, you could go to school, but I don't think that's going to be made available to you. And I said, I realize that, you know, I think the chances are very slim, made 5%, you know, and he just looked at me and he said, less than that. So I said, okay, whatever. But not more than 10 minutes after that conversation, I get a phone call and sure enough, it's the tech school asking me if I'm available for that class the week following and would I be able to go? And I nearly freaked out. I was like, oh my gosh, because I have to tell you, my boyfriend at the time is on his way three hours away from there. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is a chance where I could actually be located somewhat close to him. And so this would be fabulous, not only get a new career, but then, you know, be able to see him on the weekends maybe. So that was just funny because from Edwards, I was able to go to tech school to be a comm officer, which was in Biloxi, Mississippi, at Keechler Air Force Base, about three hours south of Maxwell in Montgomery. And so after tech school, then we ended up being able to get a joint spouse assignment. And that, from that point, I pretty much pushed my career on the back burner because I basically tore up the orders I had, which was to go report to a three-star at Nellis. I had gotten orders to go from Edwards to Nellis as an IM officer when they saw that I was a halfway decent troop on a TDY. They invited me back, you know, for an assignment, the most prestigious place to start off. But that's okay. You know, I thought, well, you know, AETC isn't bad. That's where all the training occurs. Why not? You know, it's okay to go from AFMC, Material Command, to the Air Education and Training Command at uh, Montgomery. So went to a training base, enjoyed that, ended up going from there to Washington, D.C., and then started off at Bowling Air Force Base, and then went to the Pentagon. And then when you were at the Pentagon, September 11th happened. Do you want to talk about that at all? I can say a few things about it. I had been volunteering at the Arlington Free Clinic, which is a pharmacy providing services to low and poor, uh, low income folks who might otherwise not be getting their medication. So on the weekends, I would volunteer there, and I knew a gal who was one of those who perished in that day. So it was painful for me to see that there was so much destruction. I myself had been taken aback when I started working there, and I had thought, well, gosh, you know, I'm a brand new captain. Uh, one of the things I like to do whenever I get oriented to a new place is to see where emergency exits are and how do you practice your drills, like your fire drills and whatnot. And I had asked my superintendent at the time, hey, when was the last time we had a fire drill? That's just what I'm used to. And the response is what really surprised me because they said, Captain, uh, we're at the Pentagon. Fire drills are for base level. And we don't do that here. We don't need to do that. I just looked at him like, huh, is that right? <laughs> okay. Hmm, that's different. And so when we were hit that day, not, well, I, I kind of think I should have backed up a little bit. But prior to that time, like, there were people in our office trying to figure out what was going on with the World Trade Towers. And, uh, you know, one one hit and then the other one was hit. And 
I made a comment to my boss at the time and I said, you know, I don't think this is the safest place in the world to be right now because of the way you know, we were situated. And so when we heard the boom and felt the vibration of the impact, there was just pandemonium. It was just very chaotic. And I didn't really know which way to go because we hadn't practiced any drills. So people in my office and I, we all gathered together. We walked outside. We went upstairs and then we pretty much separated. From that point, we didn't really stay together. So it was it was pretty chaotic and I wanted to go back into a couple of things. Uh, first of all, I wanted to use my EMT certification, but the the protective service, the defense protective service guys were very much adamant that I was not to be allowed back in. And when I said, hey, please, you know, I'm I'm trained as a medic, you know, I can help. He said, we don't need your help. You know, we just we need you out of the building for your own safety. And then I explained that I knew where the guest cards were, governmental emergency telecommunication service cards, which would be a way of getting through, you know, for telephones that were having problems. And I said, hey, you know, I want to get those cards and hand them out to the people who really need them right now. And even with that, I was told, no, no, we can't let you in. So I I was quite frustrated. And when I walked outside the building that day, I, I saw a lady who was just sobbing, you know, shaking uncontrollably. And she had seen the actual impact of the plane hitting the exterior of the building. And so she was she was just beside herself, you know, and, and very emotional and just couldn't really explain what she saw, but she she was just just sobbing and other people were holding her in, in their arms and I looked up and I saw the big plume of black smoke. I thought, Oh my goodness, what is this world coming to? I thought at that time that I did not want to bring any children into this world because it was such a crazy place. This is just too crazy. You know, why would I want to, you know, bring in another person into this world with this craziness? But I was able to get through on a phone call to my parents who, they were in Hawaii at the time and they didn't know what was going on because it was literally three o'clock in the morning. So I woke them up and I said, hey, mom and dad, hey, this is just to let you know that, um, I'm okay. All right. If you look at the news, you'll see some things happening, but I'm alive. I just don't know if my husband is. So, you know, hopefully he'll be okay. But right now I just wanted to let you know not to worry about me. And they said, okay, well, thank you. And then they proceeded to understand what was happening. Um, but, but it was a really painful experience because I really wanted to do more and I felt like I wasn't able to. Ever since that day, I've had some problems with with my educational attainment. I had planned to go, you know, to George Mason University and complete a bootstrap program, which would have allowed me to knock out the prerequisites for medical school. And I had already gotten permission from a previous boss to attend, but all of that just kind of flew by the wayside and I didn't ever get the chance to attend that school for that reason. So and was your husband in the Pentagon too when the plane hit? He was actually en route to school. He was attending George Washington University as a law student, uh, getting his LLM, which is a postgraduate uh, degree. It's usually about one year. He was studying intellectual property 
after having received his JD from Harvard. So that was what well, he was on his he was on his bike heading there to go to class. And he stopped and he looked around trying to figure out, you know, before the impact, if there was any additional security around the building. He didn't see any. So once the impact occurred, he uh, he stopped and rendered aid to the motorists and to people who were around the exterior of the building trying to help them and basically kept people safe and, and uh, tried to reassure them, you know, how to out of harm's way until security forces and the FBI relieved him. He did a lot. He did a lot of good. And I wish I could have helped more in that capacity. But I didn't actually hear from him until numerous hours afterwards. There was no way of reaching him. I didn't know where he was and he didn't know where I was. We didn't really have any meeting point, you know, figured out. That's crazy. I don't think I ever really thought about, I think I saw stuff on the news in New York, but I never saw anything at the Pentagon because it was the Pentagon. And I never thought about what the chaos would have been like. And the fact that you said that they didn't do fire drills. And I was like, yeah, because if you emptied out that whole building, that would take a ton of time. And people are like, we don't need to do that. And so that's crazy. Well, and there's also the way the building was set up. It was established with five different sectors. And so each sector, which was like a piece of the pie, had its own communication and electrical wiring. So there really wasn't any one button to push to say evacuation. There wasn't a way to get that word out because there was an announcement that there was an incoming aircraft, okay, and that it was destined for either Pentagon Capitol Building or White House. And so leadership at the Pentagon knew that there was something heading toward D.C., but unfortunately there wasn't a way to carry out a mass evacuation of personnel quickly. And so, you know, as a result of that, as a comm officer, I sat down with the operations folks and I found three different ways to alert people in the event of a need for a future evacuation. And so we made sure to get that corrected ASAP. I would like to just also mention that one of my troops had told me about how he was alerted to the evacuation. And it was a phone call from his wife down in Woodbridge, 50 miles south. She was watching CNN. She saw that the Pentagon was on fire. She called up her husband. Hey, honey, what you doing? I'm working. Why are you calling me? Uh, because your building's on fire. Did you know that? Um, no, actually, I wasn't aware. Are you sure? Oh, yes, I see it on CNN. It's on fire out there. Oh, okay. I guess I'll do that then. Thank you. So that was how he was asked to evacuate from his wife, who was watching it on CNN. Yeah, I mean, I heard from a three-star who had told me about what they were trying to do, and they tried really hard to get the word out, but there just wasn't a way set up to do that, you know, and so the same guy who had given a gets card to, you know, so he knew about communications, but he didn't have any way to quickly get people out within five minutes notice. So September 11th had a huge impact on your life from then on forward because it stopped you kind of from going to the school that you wanted to go to? Yes. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to pursue the uh, bootstrap. And believe it or not, when I first got to the Pentagon, I was offered a slot to go to SOS in residence. But because I had been there for less than a month, I thought, well, you know what? I really need to be available for my troops right now because they're trying to teach me how to do my job. And I really don't want to just take off for six weeks like that and leave them hanging. That wouldn't be very nice. So let me postpone this this school 
And as it turned out, that was the only time I was ever offered a slot to go in residence. So I unfortunately kind of did myself in that way a little bit, um, not realizing that that was the only time that I was going to be given a resident slot for squadron officer school. I had a very good boss before going to the Pentagon, very, very high integrity and hardworking, a really, really good supervisor and commander. He had tried to arrange for a follow-on assignment for me to go from the Pentagon into school full-time, but because of the events of September 11, that was not going to be happening anymore. So I ended up just working on a master's degree similar to the comm field, which ended up being Master's of Science and Administration, Central Michigan University. But I was asked to report early to my next assignment, and that meant I wasn't able to finish my graduate degree. So I'm 33 out of 36 credits on that degree, and it's been difficult because, you know, I try to go back and finish it, but it, it's been a challenge. That was poor leadership to not let you finish your program that you were so close to completing? I I wish that, that I could have finished it because at this point now, you know, I'm having to start over with a different degree and I have a year left on my post-901 GI Bill. So hopefully I'll knock out an MBA, but that's basically starting from scratch on a whole different graduate program. And that's the best way I can try to get the MSA reinvigorated is by showing how a degree like an MBA, is sort of similar to MSA in that the coursework is potentially correlated and therefore I might be able to get some of that credit back if I do another degree. You know, a lot of things that I, I kind of wish I had done differently. I didn't have to go report early at that next job. I didn't even have to take it at all because my commander had sat down with me and said, are you sure you want to think about this, people down there? at that organization who have had some difficulties with one particular supervisor, and that's the one that you're going to go report to. Are you sure you want to do that? And I looked at him in the eye and I said, hey, boss, I think I am pretty good at dealing with people. I've had all kinds of crazy missions here at the Pentagon, doing you know things that aren't normally done and trying to find a way to justify them. So I really think that it would be okay you know, to give it a shot do my best, and I think I'll be all right. Had I heeded his warning, though, I would still be in the Air Force today because it was that next supervisor that really just did me in, unfortunately. That is unfortunate. So where did you go? I went to one of the bases in Mississippi, basically did the comm for supporting pilot. We did the ground to air, did all the cell phones, uh, pagers, and all the other communications for the base, including giant voice. And we had probably about 45 people assigned, you know, at any particular time in that flight. But it was, it was pretty painful because of the leadership that I had at the time. And I should have asked, why did you decide to go? Why did you, even after you got the warning from your boss, what drove you to take that assignment? I needed a flight commander slot in order to get a good report card for my next promotion. And that was a slot, I, that was the block I needed to fill was a flight commander slot. Even though I had been offered flight commander positions in D.C., I had been offered to go to Andrews or Boeing and be a flight commander there. My husband had an assignment in Mississippi, so I wanted to follow him. And I turned down the slots in D.C., which since we had no kids at the time, that would have been 
easy for me to do just to get that block filled out and then I could join him. But instead, I thought it'd be more important to be in the same location as him. And I ended up not being able to complete that assignment, which led to not being selected for major. That unfortunately was the reason why I'm no longer active duty status at this time. That's really hard. I don't understand why you're firing me. Well, I don't have to tell you. If you had a job at IBM, I wouldn't have to tell you. So I'm not going to tell you. So I was sitting there thinking, what did I do? Why am I having to move? And so it was just an unfortunate circumstance. And it just taught me that sometimes it doesn't matter how hard you work or what you do. You just, if you're not in the right place at the right time, sometimes things just don't work out and you, there's not a lot you can do about it. That's really a hard situation and kind of frustrating, but it seems like you've made peace with it and moving on the best that you can. I try to. We kind of skipped over some of the stuff I talked about in the bio. So you, can you talk a little bit about what happened when you were on watch for the space shuttle? Sure. I was basically the link between base and the surrounding community. And so when NASA stated that there was a shuttle that was entering the atmosphere and disintegrating, it was a sad situation. I, I made some phone calls and you know, let the medical folks know in case there was anything they could do. Based on the situation, you know, the the shuttle, it was uh, disintegrating over several states. And so we were along that path. And there wasn't much we could do except just be on standby in case we were invited by NASA to participate. I passed the message along and remain calm and basically let the right folks know that, hey, this is what's happening. Sometimes those things happen and there's not much you can do. Um, Hope that uh, we learn from whatever went wrong. And you also got to help serve 42 heads of state at the NATO 50th anniversary summit. What was that event like? And I was serving in the the summit operations center, which was headed up by an army colonel and What our role was basically was to make sure that the Department of State and all of the people who came together to help this event were were safe and had what services they needed from the military. So we, I helped out with the computers and with the protocol. It was about a week of long hours. After you left the military, did you and your husband decide that you wanted to start your family? We ended up having first born baby girl in Mississippi. So she is now 14 years old and I have a younger daughter who's eight. We've been living in San Antonio for the past five years and I'm very grateful for the chance to have a family and very grateful for the opportunities that the Air Force has given us. If it wasn't for the Air Force, I wouldn't have been born because my dad would not have gone to Taiwan and met my mom there. He was almost drafted into the Army for the Vietnam War. So instead of being an infantryman, he wanted to do something different and was a weather forecaster initially and then became a medic as a medical resource administrator. For me joining the military, I would not have met my husband. And, you know, I've been very... Very fortunate that you know I have all my fingers and all my toes and I can still see. I feel like I do want to continue my service somehow. 
And maybe I will find a way to do that someday, maybe through federal service, maybe through some other way. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in our military. Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmantomom at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of Women of the Military.